Well, as a preacher and someone who's asked to stand up in front of people and teach God's Word regularly, uh, I'm always on the lookout for what I call stories that will preach. That is, stories in my own life that just happen randomly or stories out in the greater world around me uh, that I might be able to use to illustrate some spiritual truth. If you've heard me for any length of time, you know I love to tell stories. Well, a number of years ago, now, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, I came across a story in the news about the British royal family that I filed away in that you might be able to use file, folder. And so today I'm going to use it. The story was about Princess Anne, who is the younger sister of Prince Charles, the only daughter of Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip. I'm sure you all knew that. But that's the extent of my knowledge of the royal family right there. Five questions to ask Pastor Andrew. But the story really wasn't about Princess Anne that much. It was about Princess Anne's dog, Florence the Bull Terrier. Uh, now, here's a picture of Princess Anne. I'm not sure which of the bull terriers this one is about, or which one is Florence. Maybe the one in the front. Let's just say it's the one in the front. The story is about Florence the Bull Terrier. It seems that Florence, one day, bit, not seriously, but bit one of the royal family maids. And then a few days later, mauled one of the queen's beloved corgis. Now, evidently, biting the maid wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> but mauling the queen's corgi, that was a big deal. In fact, the corgi, sadly, was injured so badly, the dog had to be put down, which meant that Florence the bull terrier was in trouble, deep trouble. But instead of having the dog euthanized, Princess Anne decided to send Florence to an animal psychologist. And I'm not making this up. You can look it up on Google. It's a true story. The animal psychologist was a man named Roger Mugford who examined the dog and was quoted afterward as saying, we're not talking about an inherently aggressive or dangerous dog. She's just a dog who's feeling a, feeling a bit out of sorts about something, perhaps old age or pain and is feeling a bit cranky. What I thought is, wouldn't you like to be part of that counseling session? Tell me, Florence, how do you feel? Woof! You sound a bit out of sorts. Tell me more. The truth is, I think we can all relate a little bit to Florence the Bull Terrier. I mean, Christmas has come and gone. New Year's has come and gone. The holidays were great, but now it's back to, you know, real life. The pandemic is still here, which we all know. It's January. It's dark. This morning it was 7 degrees when I left my house. Last week it was minus 25 at the wind chill factor. And we can feel just a bit out of sorts as well. In fact, so many of us can feel that way at this time of the year that the medical world has a term for it. It's called seasonal affective disorder. You heard of that? S-A-D, or SAD for short. It has to do with a biochemical imbalance caused by the lack of sunlight. It's a real thing. It causes the desire to oversleep, uh, difficulty staying awake. Now, this is different from S-I-D, which is, like, which is what I call sermon-induced drowsiness. That's a whole different thing. <laughs> a little too much laughter there. <laughs> Tendency to overeat, a craving for carbohydrates, resulting in weight gain. I thought that might just be craving for Christmas cookies. Uh, feelings of misery and even hopelessness. I thought that was about being a Bears fan. But these things are real. And the treatment is a form of light therapy. Now, whether or not we're out of, just out of sorts like Florence the Bull Terrier or suffering from seasonal affective disorder, sooner or later I think most of us will experience what I sometimes call the winter of the heart. 
or spiritual depression. Now, I'm not talking about clinical depression. Clinical depression is biochemical in nature, needs to be treated medically, but I'm talking about a kind of spiritual depression, a kind of spiritual discouragement, questions, even sometimes a sense of despair. It might start with a life situation or a sense that God is just somehow far off and maybe it becomes hard to pray. It's what St. John of the Cross long time ago called the dark night of the soul. We're in a series now, which you all know, called Questioning God. We're looking into the Psalms. We've looked at a couple of questions so far. We looked at uh, where is God uh, in light of all the injustice we see around us in the world? Where is God? Last week we looked at what's the meaning of my life? What is my life? Does my life have any significance even when I fail so often? And today we're going to look at why do I feel so spiritually alone, or how do I deal with a sense of spiritual depression? And I think for me, of all the questions we're going to deal with in this particular series, this one hits closest to home, because in my career, life as a pastor, this is the question I've heard more than any other. Why do I feel so spiritually alone? Why does God seem far off? Why do I feel so spiritually depressed? We're going to look at Psalm 42 today. And if you look in your own Bible, um, you'll see that this psalm has a little notation in front of it. And not all the psalms have these, but this one does. And it says, for the director of music, a maskil of the sons of Korah. Now, what does that mean? These notations are a little bit mysterious, but the sons of Korah were evidently a family of gifted singers charged with leading the people of Israel in worship. Now, some think that uh, the sons of Korah are responsible for writing this psalm. Others think the psalm originates with King David uh, and that the sons of Korah were charged with, with putting it to music. A maskil is uh, a Hebrew word that means to make wise or to teach. So what we can know is that this psalm is a song intended to be sung but also intended to teach, to instruct God's people on what faith looks like during what we would call the winter of the heart. Psalm 42. Let me read it all the way through for us, and then we'll dive in. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? There's the question, the central question of the psalm. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? 
And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I think we can phrase the central question, as I said earlier, of this psalm, if it's of David or sons of Korah, as how do I deal with times of spiritual struggle or spiritual depression? And by the way, you should know that Chapel Street, here at Chapel Street, we have a number of care groups uh, that are designed to encourage folks going through certain passages of life, and we have several uh, to deal with spiritual anxiety or depression. Uh, One for women called Bright Hope. Uh, We are starting one for men, hopefully later uh, in the month. And then we are just starting a brand new group for parents of children or teens who are going through anxiety or depression. You can find those information about that on our website, or you can call the church office. But the psalm writer here suggests three ways we deal with this particular question. Acknowledge, remember, and hope. First, acknowledge. Acknowledge your spiritual thirst. <clears throat> years ago, <coughs> excuse me, years ago I was part of a, a Christian basketball team that traveled uh, through Europe. We traveled like six weeks through uh, Europe playing ball games and um, bearing witness to the gospel in whatever way we could. And we spent the last week of that trip in Warsaw, Poland. This would have been in the late 70s, so it was prior to the Solidarity Revolution in, in Poland. And at that time, uh, the water wasn't safe for us to drink uh, because of parasites and uh, amoeba and the other kinds of things. So they told us not to drink the water during the seven or eight days we were in Warsaw. And so uh, we drank only bottled uh, soft drinks, uh, Coke and, and Fanta Orange, I remember. And at first, you know, we're college guys. That sounded good. You know, we get to drink a lot of Coke. But we were playing games every day. And so we got thirsty. And we found out fairly quickly after two or three days that that the, the bottled soft drinks just weren't good at quenching your body's thirst. And eventually, started to take a physical toll. My roommate during uh, that time was a, uh, a, a guy named Randy, who was six foot 11, a big, big, big tall guy. And one day, about maybe five days into this experience, uh, he went into the bathroom in our hotel, and this is a bit graphic, but I could hear him getting sick in the bathroom. He just wasn't feeling well. And then I heard a loud thump. I ran to the door, and he had, com- he had passed out completely and, and was unconscious on the floor. Uh, the lack of water, the dehydration, had caused him to collapse. It was a serious situation. Now, some scholars believe this psalm comes from a time in King David's life when he was experiencing a deep personal pain and even humiliation. We know that at the, toward the end of David's reign, his own son Absalom had plotted against his father to take his throne. And, event, and had eventually led a rebellion that caused David to flee from Jerusalem to the northern part of the country and go into hiding. So here's King David uh, running for his life because his own son is trying to kill him. And so he expresses his pain, his personal winter of the heart, as a deep spiritual thirst. He writes, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? So David's situation not only causes him deep pain, personal pain, but leaves him feeling spiritually exhausted. We might say, running on empty. And I would guess you know what that feels like. So he cries out to God. And by the way, we see this theme throughout the Bible for paying attention. Way back in 1 Kings in the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah has a great victory over the prophets of Baal. 
Then he hears that Queen, Queen Jezebel has, is going to try to kill him, and he runs away, goes into hiding, and prays to God, I've had enough, Lord. Just take my life. Just like that, he's just ready to go, ready to die. In the midst of his own suffering, Job cries out, My spirit is broken. My days are cut short. The grave awaits me. Spiritual despair. Jesus himself quoted Psalm 22 from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible says every human being is created, born with spiritual thirst. The ancient writer of Ecclesiastes said that's because God set in the hearts of men eternity. He said eternity in our hearts. So even people who do not believe in the God of the Bible have spiritual thirst. They believe in something. They may call it the universe. They may call it science. They may call it their personal higher power. They may, it may be their own selves. But every human being has spiritual thirst. And when we feel lost or abandoned, when we are in pain, people will often turn toward wells that do not satisfy. Perhaps to alcohol or drugs to numb the pain. Perhaps to work or busyness or entertainment to distract us from the pain. Or maybe into illicit relationships for temporary relief. God actually speaks through the prophet Jeremiah about this issue when he says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. Just as ultim it's ultimately toxic to try to satisfy physical thirst with, with Coke and Fanta Orange, it's also dangerous to try to satisfy the thirst of our souls if we drink from the wrong wells. But notice, David, if it's David who's behind this psalm, doesn't do this, at least not at this point. I think there was a time in his life when he did, remember the whole issue with Bathsheba. But David doesn't do this here. He simply acknowledges his spiritual thirst. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. The picture is of a deer fleeing from a predator. And the combination of fear and flight creates a powerful thirst in a deer. David says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And notice the writer of the psalm here acknowledges not only a spiritual need, but a deep sense of spiritual loneliness. That is, feeling separated from God, abandoned by his friends, and taunted by his enemies. Years ago, I read a book uh, I think it was called The Heavenly Man. It told the story of a Chinese believer named Brother Yun. He was the leader of the Chinese underground church movement. And throughout his lifetime, he had been arrested, subjected to unimaginable torture by the government, all because of his faith in Christ. And in that book, as he wrote it, he said the most painful thing for him during that part of his life uh, was not just the imprisonment, was not the beatings, was not the starvation, was not the electric baton they used to shock him, but rather the taunts of the guards. When they would say to him things like, where is your God now? Why doesn't he help you? Your God is weak. It was the taunting of his enemies. The Bible says that we too have a spiritual enemy. 
One of the names of Satan in God's word is the accuser of the brethren. The accuser. So when we're spiritually thirsty, or we're discouraged, or we feel alone, the accuser whispers to us, where is your God now? Why doesn't he come to help you? Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he doesn't even know that you exist. And what we need to see here is that David acknowledges, he simply acknowledges the thirst of his soul. He confesses with a kind of shocking honesty. I mean, this, if this is David, this is the man after God's own heart, but he acknowledges his own spiritual questions and doubt. He's spiritually thirsty. He's spiritually lonely. He's spiritually exhausted. And my guess is, that most of us here this morning in this room, if we were honest, we've been to that place. Maybe we haven't asked the question out loud. Maybe we never told anybody. Maybe we felt embarrassed or ashamed that we felt that way. Maybe you feel that way now. David just expresses with great honesty what it feels like to be in that place. And I think this psalm is in our Bible. I think this psalm is in our Bible to teach us And what it teaches us is that this place of spiritual thirst is where the deepest experience of faith actually begins. So we acknowledge. Secondly, the psalm uh, urges us to remember. To acknowledge and then to remember. Back on uh, New Year's Day, I think it was the evening of New Year's Day, uh, Lorene and I, uh, Lorene suggested we take some time to look back through our photos from the past year, just to kind of review the past year. And we took out our phones, and she had some, on her computer, she had some, we had dozens and dozens of photos, you know, you take throughout the year, it's easy to take photos now, uh, and we started looking through those pictures, and it took a while, because we had a lot of photos, and there were all kinds of experiences in those photos, trips we had made, we had a, one of our sons got married out in Utah, we visited another one in Charleston, South Carolina, we made trips out to the West Coast, Uh, When I did a wedding out there, we went to Dallas to visit one of our sons. We had all these experiences, and as we went through them, I was surprised to find out how many of those moments I'd kind of already forgotten. They were just this past year, but I'd kind of forgotten, and it was good to remember. In verse 4, we say, uh, David says, These things I remember... As I pour out my soul, how I would go, to the th- go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Uh, David here intentionally remembers two things. First, he remembers times of community and worship. He says, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. He remembers times when we would lead huge numbers of people, throngs of people, the whole community of Israel in worship. Times like he mentions in Psalm 133 where he writes, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head. I don't know about you, but I feel like over the last two years or so, I've often felt like this is exactly what COVID has robbed us of, right? You remember, it wasn't that long ago we had to shut down public services completely. And so the other pastors and I would preach sermons in empty rooms, completely empty, looking only at the lens of a camera instead of out at your faces. And that was hard. I mean, it wasn't physically hard, It was emotionally hard. It was spiritually hard. Because it felt so discouraging. Where is everybody? 
when will they ever come back in? When we finally opened up a year ago, remember? We opened up a year ago, and if you were here, you remember there were 25 people in this room. 25. And I, I've thought about that since then. We've talked about it amongst ourselves. And you can have two reactions to that. And I had both reactions. I know Jeff had both reactions. One is to say, is to feel spiritually defeated. Like, all this effort we put in all these years. And look, I remember days when the aisles were full of chairs because there weren't any rooms in the pew left. I remember when the balcony was full. I remember when people sat on the stairs. I remember when the parking lot was full. I remember those times. And I wonder, where did they all go? And it can be discouraging. Or I can remember what God has done and trust that the God who did that in the past can do that again, virus or no virus. David here remembers times of community and worship. And secondly, he remembers times of great joy. How I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts, songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He's remembering times of great celebration and joy, like when he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. And he did it so with 30,000 men, and they all celebrated. 2 Samuel 6 says, David and all Israel were celebrating with all their mights before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. I don't even know what a sistrum is, but they were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. David remembers. In Psalm 126, he writes, Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with great joy. What's significant here, I think, is that the writer of this psalm, if it's David, acknowledges his pain, but he does not allow his pain to cause him to forget what God has done in his life. And that's significant. He does not allow his pain, as deep as it is, to shape or change what he knows and believes about God. <coughs> Excuse me, A.J. Swoboda, a theologian uh, and pastor, writes, the problem occurs when we equate who God is with our feelings about God. The problem is when we equate who God is with our feelings about God. It's so easy for us, I think, and especially, I think, for younger people or younger believers to experience some difficult situation in life or some difficult season in life to feel alone or in pain or abandoned and then to say, well, then, God must not really care about me. God must not really be real then if I feel this way. Swoboda continues, he says, first, we need to learn to feel everything. Feel it to the most of our ability. Second, learn that God is far more faithful and real than those emotions let on. The psalm teaches us to acknowledge and to remember. And thirdly, it teaches us to hope. To hope. Last week we talked a bit about hope. And I said there are two kinds of hope. We all know there are two kinds of hope. Uh, there is hope that is uncertain, hope that is really just wishful thinking, like I hope my family stays healthy, or I hope the winter isn't too severe. It's hope, but it's wishful thinking. 
But there's another kind of hope, hope that is certain, hope that is anchored in that which is unchanging. And in the midst of his spiritual struggle, David puts his hope in two unchanging truths we see in this psalm. First, hope in God's salvation. Verse 5. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you uh, in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is down, cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. From the depths of his depression, his spiritual depression, the psalm writer hopes in the salvation of God. I've done, uh, I think I've done five funerals since the beginning of December. And at least two of those, uh, we joined together in times of grief and sang the great hymn that includes the words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And we sing those words at that time because we've set our hope in something that's unchanging, the salvation of our God. The psalm says, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of Jordan and from Hermon and from Mount Mizar. The NIV translation reads, From the land of Jordan and the heights of Hermon. This suggests to me that David is subtly shifting his perspective. As if by remembering the salvation of God, he's able to lift his eyes just enough to see his situation in his life from a bit different perspective. He not only sees his present situation, which is running for his life, fleeing in fear, pain, loneliness, and questions to see the wider scope, the wider horizon of God's salvation. If we read the ancient book of Job, we see the same thing. Job says in chapter 19 of that book, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Our hope is in God's salvation. And secondly, the psalm reminds us to hope in God's love. Look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I, I love these two verses. We try to explain them. David is holding two seemingly opposite and contradictory things in his mind and heart at the same time. On the one hand, there's the raging breakers and waves of life that toss and turn and threaten to overwhelm. On the other hand, there's the steadfast love of God, which he says is commanded by day, and by night his song is with me. I think these two vastly different experiences are connected by that one mysterious phrase. Maybe you noticed it. Deep calls to deep. Deep calls to deep. I think the psalm is teaching us that it's precisely in the depths, in the lowest places of our lives, in the abyss, which is what that word deep means in Hebrew, it's in the abyss that we best know the God who commands his love toward us and to hear his song over us. I saw this story just this week. But it's happened back in 2007. 
<clears throat> a musician began playing a violin, and maybe you saw this too. A musician began playing a violin outside a metro station in Washington, D.C. You know, he was just one of those street musicians, left his guitar case open so people could walk by and toss coins into his guitar case. He played classical pieces on his violin for 45 minutes. Over a thousand people walked by, only a handful, nine or ten, stopped to listen or to put money in his case. Only one woman recognized the musician. The violinist was named Joshua Bell, one of the finest musicians in the world. He played some of the most difficult pieces ever written on a violin worth $3.5 million. People didn't hear the beauty of the music because they weren't looking for it in a subway station. And so they missed it. The psalm says, deep calls to deep. The great British pastor F.B. Meyer wrote that this is the depths of God answering the depths of human need. The deep of divine redemption calls to the deep of human need, he wrote. And that leads us to the psalm's conclusion, verse 9. I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I've told this story before, but years ago, uh, a family in church invited us to spend a weekend uh, at their lake, small lake cottage uh, in Wisconsin, on Whitewater Lake in Wisconsin. And uh, so we went up um, as family, and they had left a little note next to the coffee maker. It said, for the best coffee ever, use water from the well, and left directions to where the well was. Uh, we didn't know what that was, but we knew that they were going to ask us eventually, since they left a note there, did you go? And so the last day we were there, we, we, we followed the directions and went to the well. And we got there, and all it was was a pipe sticking out of the ground. And I have a picture of it here. A pipe sticking out, and water just gushing out of the pipe in, under the ground. That was the well. And we had a gallon jug with us, and we took the jug over and filled it up. It took four seconds for that water to fill a gallon jug. And I, so I did some math when I got home. That's 15 gallons a minute, 900 gallons an hour, 21,000 gallons a day. And there's a sign just next to that well that talks about the farmer who dug the well, hit an artesian spring in 1895. And that water has been flowing exactly like that, 21,000 gallons a day since 1895. An astonishing, unimaginable, unending supply of water, completely free for whoever holds a, a jug underneath it. But here's the thing I thought about. The source of that water is underground. It's underground. Deep calls to deep. So what do we do? What do we hold on to when the waves of life break over us? When we find ourselves stuck in the darkness and loneliness of a kind of spiritual depression, when our prayers seem to bounce off the ceiling, when it seems like nobody's listening, the psalm says, acknowledge your thirst. Remember, remember what God has done for you. And hope on what he will do. Deep calls to deep. He commands his love to you, even at night. 
he sings his song over you. Will you bow with me as we close? Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word today, for this honest confession that comes to us through the centuries, maybe from David, maybe from uh, an ancient anonymous writer. It's a confession of spiritual thirst. So thank you for teaching us that it's even when we feel most alone or most abandoned or most overwhelmed that we can know the depth of your presence and love because you are there. You command your love to us. You meet us at the depth of our own need. And your truth and your hope are not dependent on what we feel at any point in time. Remind us that your well never runs dry. And may we meet you there. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.